In 2 Kings chapter 5, we read about where it says, Now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor. When I read about Naaman, I think about someone like Russell Crowe in the movie Gladiator. Remember all the battle scenes there at the beginning and how Russell Crowe, I don't remember what the uh, character's name was, but he was a mighty man of valor. He knew how to go out and fight battles and win them. And he was one tough guy. And so when I read about Naaman, I picture Russell Crowe in the Gladiator, someone that knew how to fight. The Bible says he was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now, they still have leprosy, but I don't think they, it's uh, as much of a problem as it used to be. Leprosy is a disease that just eats your skin, just eats your body up, and you start losing fingers, and it's just a terrible, I guess it'll eventually kill you, and it's a terrible disease, and when so, it was so contagious, and when someone had it, they couldn't be around anyone else. The lepers would live out by themselves and could have no contact with anyone else. And so Naaman had leprosy, which... Uh, it's kind of like you know someone now having cancer or multiple sclerosis, just something you're not going to get rid of, and it's just going to get worse and worse. But in their fighting, they had gone out and won a battle, and they had brought back this one woman, and she was uh, a handmaid, I believe, to Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, If only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. Well, word got back to Naaman about somebody that could maybe heal him. And so Naaman got a procession and they went out to find this prophet whose name was Elisha. And so they went to Elisha's house and they knocked on the door and told him what the problem was. But Elisha wouldn't even open the door or come to the door himself. In verse 10 of uh, 2 Kings 5, it says, Elisha sent a messenger to him. Elisha wouldn't even come out and say hi. What about if, if you came to my house and I wouldn't even come answer the door? But Elisha, Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the uh, Jordan River seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. So what did Naaman do? Did he go wash seven times in the Jordan River? No, it says that Naaman became furious and went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, Surely he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. Naaman had in his mind how he thought Elisha was going to come out and just be real dramatic, very Hollywood, and, and heal him of his leprosy, and he would look down. But that's not the way it happened. And Naaman went away furious about this. He, maybe he thought this was some kind of joke. But his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father... If the prophet had told you to do something great, would you have not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? If he had told you to do go climb to the top of a mountain and see a prophet, you would have done that, wouldn't you? Why not do a simple thing that he's asked you to do? And so Naaman went and dipped in the Jordan River seven, seven times, and his flesh became new. He was healed of his leprosy when he did what he was told. And I read this story this morning... Because I want to encourage us to not neglect the little things. We say, oh, if I won the lottery, I would give so much money to the Church of Christ in Nigeria. And, and I would build orphanages and I would give to cancer research. And we talk about all the great things we would do. And yet, like Naaman, I think maybe we neglect the small things. 
So let's, let's not neglect the small things. In Isaiah chapter 66, God asked a question. Beginning in verse 1. He said, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. You know, now that we've got like the Hubble telescope and all these uh, uh, space probes that go out and send us these beautiful, beautiful pictures of Saturn's rings and, and nebulas and collapsing stars and exploding stars. And we see all these beautiful things from outer space. It's just amazing what is out there. And so God tells us here, even back before the Hubble telescope, God says, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. And he asks the question, where is the house that you will build me? And where is the place of all my, of my rest? For all those things my hand is made. And so we see churches, especially the Catholic churches in Europe, you know, churches that are hundreds, maybe thousands of years old and have gold and art and they're ornate and they're huge and they're beautiful and they're tourist attractions. They're so beautiful. And people spend millions and millions of dollars to build cathedrals and temples and, and, and huge churches. And God asks the question here. He says, do you really think I'm going to be impressed with all that after all that I've created? What can you do that compares to what I've done? He says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where's the house that you will build me? Where's the place of my rest for all those things my hand has made? And all those things exist. But on this one thing, I will look. What's the one thing that God cares about? On this one thing, I will look. On him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor. He wasn't necessarily talking about poor people. He was talking about people that are poor in spirit and people that are humble. Jesus said when he was before Pilate in John chapter 18, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. You know, most people in the religious world think that Jesus is going to come back and the throne of David is going to be dug up and the temple is going to be rebuilt and Jesus is going to come to earth and rule on a throne just like King Arthur ruled. But Jesus said, told Pilate, said, that's not the way it's going to be. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 14 and verse 15, he says, The kingdom of heaven is not meat and drink. In other words, it's not things that we can see. But it's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Where do you have these things? Are these things found in in, uh, England or, or France or Canada? Righteousness and peace and joy. These are things we find in our heart. Jesus' kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. And that's why God's not interested in big, ornate buildings here. But on this one thing will I look on a person who's sorrowful and repentant and has an humble heart. That's what Jesus looks on. Jesus, the throne that Jesus reigns from, is not found buried over in in Israel somewhere. The throne that Jesus is reigning over is your heart. That's what Jesus is concerned about. Not a temple that you can build him, but the condition of our heart. And so I want to talk about three areas of our life. One is our worship. Now there's a, right now, throughout the world, throughout the United States, there are a lot of big, fancy church services going on. Very complicated, lots of ceremony, ceremonies that go back hundreds and maybe thousands of years. And what did we do here this morning? We sang. You know, anywhere in the world... 
It doesn't matter if it's in, in Nigeria, in Africa. It doesn't matter if it's a little village of poor people. It doesn't matter if it's the Eskimos. It doesn't matter if it is a big church. Everybody can sing to God, our Creator. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, he says, What is it then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will pray with the understanding. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the understanding. We put our minds into it, we think about the words, and we put our heart into it, and we sing praises to God. And anybody, anywhere, at any time, with anything, can do that. Now, I know that we rely pretty heavily on our songbooks. We can't get our nose out of our songbook. But some of the most beautiful singing I ever heard was at a black congregation down in Austin. And the only people that had songbooks was me and my family. And everyone else had the words memorized. And they sang and they put their hearts into it. And it was the most beautiful singing I've ever heard in my entire life. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 19 Paul talks about speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Anybody, anywhere, when their heart is right before God, can sing songs to God. Martin Luther, the guy that rebelled against the Catholic Church back in the 14 or 1500s, said, I would no sooner sing to God with an instrument than I would pray to God with an instrument. And we realize when we pray to God, it's, it's our heart. We're communing with God. We're telling Him our thoughts. We're pouring our heart out to Him. And that's what singing is also. Anyone, anywhere can do it. Another thing we do is we pray. Has it ever struck you, after reading Isaiah 66, where God says, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool, that the God that created everything there is, that is eternal, is all-powerful, cares what you think. Does President Obama know your name? Does Rick Perry know your name? Does the governor, I mean, the, the mayor of Denton or, or Dallas, or any, do any of these people know your name? Does H. Ross Perot know who you are? If you knocked on his door or called his phone, would he answer it? Does he care about you? There's lots of important people in this world that do not care about you. But the one that's the God over all of them does care about you. And he cares about President Obama, and he'll hear President Obama's prayer, if it's sincere and all, you know. But your prayer is just as important. Any king that's ever prayed to God, your prayer is just as important. One time when the uh, Jesus and the disciples were talking about John the Baptist, remember him? He was in the wilderness, and he's preaching about the kingdom and the fact that Jesus was coming. Jesus explained to them one time, So there has never arisen one greater than John the Baptist. Of all the kings, nobody was greater than John the Baptist. But anyone in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. Does it ever amaze you that God is interested in your prayer? He's interested in in the people that you pray for that are sick. He's interested in the things that are bothering you, the problems that you're having. Billions of people have lived on this earth and God cares for He'll hear your prayer. That is simply amazing. We shouldn't neglect that. And then another thing we do, and of course we can pray at any time, not just when we come to worship. But another thing that we do is we have communion. You know, as I I mentioned, people erect 
great monuments, the Washington Monument and the Sam Houston Monument and, and, and cathedrals and tombs. And, and we build all sorts of things to honor other men. But to honor God and His Son that died on the cross, we do a very simple thing. It doesn't cost hardly anything. We don't have to go bow down at the foot of some altar. Every Sunday we can do this. I've heard that wheat that you need for the bread and grape juice with fruit of the vine can be grown on any continent except, of course, Antarctica. But no one can live down there anyway. You can do this anywhere. You can do this in South America. You can do this in Europe. You can do this in Russia. And all across the world this morning. Where today, people are taking the communion. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 In verse 16, Paul explains, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Communion means fellowship or sharing. And when we take this, we're doing it with each other, and we're doing it with all Christians everywhere that take the communion. We're all part of Christ's body, not just us here. But then he goes on, and he's going to start talking about the Old Testament, or the Jews. He says in, or in verse 17, he says, For we, being many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat the sacrifices partakers of the altar? Remember under the Old Testament, people had to offer sacrifices, bulls and goats and rams and, and stuff like this. And so they'd bring it to the altar, they'd prepare the animal, kill it, prepare it, put it on the altar, and sacrifice it to God. But as the meat cooked, that's where the priests, the Levites, got their food. And Paul asks a question here, talking about Israel after the flesh, the worldly Israel, are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? And the comparison is, then when we eat this communion that represents the body that Jesus gave and the blood that he gave for the forgiveness of our sins, we are then partakers of his sacrifice. It's like we were back there 2,000 years ago when John and James and Mary and all the other people were there with Jesus at his death. When we partake of this, we partake of the altar or of his sacrifice. And that's special. When I go to the Washington Monument, it's big, it's impressive, but that's it. I can just say, wow. But with this, we're partakers. And it's so simple. Anyone, anywhere can do it if their heart is right. And so we'll fi- we find that uh, the church that Jesus set up is not big. It's not complicated. It's very simple. But it comes from the heart. That's where Jesus reigns. And that's the one thing that God will look on is someone that's, that's humble and has a contrite, repentant heart. So we don't need to, to overlook the thing, uh, simple things in life. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, in verse 3, he says, But I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that's in Christ. I don't know why it is, but men seem to like to complicate things and make things bigger. 
And if you don't believe that, just ask anyone that's in business where the government just comes in and heaps on regulation after regulation, like to make things harder and harder. And people like to do that with religion. Paul says, I'm afraid in the same way that Eve was deceived by the devil, that you also are going to be deceived when someone comes in and wants to make things harder than they're supposed to be. He talks about the simplicity in Christ. We don't need to be drawn away from that. Another area of life where we don't need to neglect the little things is in our relationships with other people. That would be with husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, uh, brothers and sisters like us, whoever, parents and children. The little things are important. You know, most of us here, I guess, uh, have a job, and at the end of every week or two weeks, we get a, a big paycheck. I run my own business, and I do swimming pools, take care of swimming pools. And so every month, I'll get dozens and dozens of checks in the mail. Some of them are little, and some of them are big. And every once in a while, I'll make a big deposit of 10 or 12 or 15 checks. Oh, wow, that's a lot of money. But usually what happens is... I'll deposit three or four, and then another one or two, and then another three or four, and then another one or two. I said, man, I'm sure not getting much money in. But then I look at my bank account at the end of the month. I said, wow, that added up in a hurry. Or on the other hand, what we do sometimes is we get a big paycheck or we have a large balance in our bank, and two weeks later it's all gone, and we, we didn't make a house payment. We didn't make a car payment, and it's gone. Where did it go? And we start looking, say, well, we went out to eat here, and, we, and I bought a new dress here, and I went out to eat here, and we, we saw a movie here, and we went to Walmart, and all those little 25 and 50 and $75 purchases add up, and all of a sudden, you maybe are overdrawn. You say, how did that happen? It just adds up or subtracts away, whatever. Our relationship with our husband or wife is like a bank account. Every once in a while, we can make a big deposit, do something really nice, like send roses or um, take, you know, go out to eat at a really nice restaurant. We can do some big things, but those are really. When was the last time you did a big thing for somebody? Probably a while. But just like I said, I can get one or two checks and, de- and deposit it, and another one or two, and at the end of the month, I've got a lot of money there. It's the little things that are probably going to make that bank account in our relationship grow. But then sometimes we make withdrawals. We'll do or say something that we could just kick ourselves for saying. And it really, really hurts the other person. And we remember it for a long time. And they remember it. And that's like a big deposit. I mean, a big withdrawal out of the account. And the bank sends you a... Uh, an account says you are over overdrawn and we're going to charge you for it. And we can do that with our relationships with people. But most often, the way we build it up is with the little things. First Peter chapter 3 and verse 8, Peter says, be courteous. Do you know what courteous is? Courteous is means you're not thinking about yourself, but you're thinking about the people around you. When you sit down to eat, you don't just spread out and take up all the room and put your elbows on the table. You remember that there's other people. And so you, 
you sit back, kind of pull your arms in, and you think about them. You don't talk with your mouth full. You say things like, yes, sir, and yes, ma'am, and no, sir, and thank you, and please, and you write thank you notes. Little things that we do that make things better between us. But those little things add up. We don't need to neglect the little things. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul talks about love. One of the the best things a Christian could do is for us to get out of our minds, or to get in our minds maybe, the difference between what the Bible talks about love and what we know of as affection or infatuation. You know, a country song talks about falling in love and falling out of love like it's water or something. But that's not the way Bible God describes love. 1 Corinthians 13 in verse 4, Paul tells some things about love. He says, love suffers long. In other words, love puts up with stuff. You're patient. You're patient with your wife's idiosyncrasies. You're patient with your husband. He says, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. And I was talking about how good you are. It's not puffed up, not arrogant. Love does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own. In other words, it's not selfish. It's not provoked. In other words, someone that's full of love, you can do lots of bad things and they'll still keep their calm. Love thinks no evil. Love does not rejoice in iniquity. We're not happy when something bad happens to someone else. Love rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things. That means it puts up with stuff. It believes all things. I believe you can be a better person. I believe you have the best of intentions. I believe you're a good person. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. None of these are feelings. These are all things that we do. And the Bible says to love our neighbor. You know, when you bring in a cat or a dog out of the cold, we do that because maybe it's shivering and it's malnourished and it's hungry and it's cold. And when we feel sorry for it. But we don't love it. We just feel sorry for it. But then after we've had that cat for a while and we start seeing, or that little puppy or whatever, and we start seeing its personality and it starts playing with us and gets cuter and everything, then we start having affection to it. We start being uh, close to it. and in, 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 uh, We just have affection. But the love was when we took it in, even when it was ugly, and we didn't know it, didn't know anything about it, but we had compassion on it. That's what love is. Love is what we do. And we'll find that in our relationships with husbands and wives and children and parents, you know, speaking of children and parents, we sat at a, we went out to a little Mexican place, a Mexican restaurant in Van Alstine last night, and they had a guitar player playing country music. And right in front of us, was what I assumed to be the mom. Could have been a big sister, but I'm just thinking his mom. And a little boy, a little red-headed boy, about 10 or 12. And the mom was on the phone. And in the 45 minutes we were there, I think I saw that mom talk to the son maybe once or twice. 45 minutes. The mom had something more important to do. Now, one of these days, that son's going to grow up, and he's not going to be very, or I'm just surmising here, He's not going to be very close to that mom anymore because she failed to make all those little deposits, the things that she could have been doing last night, things that she could be doing this morning. She had what she thought were more important things. 
And just like that old song, The Cat's in the Cradle, one of these days, parents like that wake up and wonder where they went wrong. They neglected the little things. It'll come back to bite you if we do. So we don't need to neglect the little things when it comes to um, relationships. You know, trivial does not mean unimportant. It just means small. Mundane or boring does not mean unimportant. It just means we do it all the time. It's still important. Don't neglect the little things in our relationships. Another area, which is real similar to what I just talked about, but I was talking about just now people that are close to us, like family. But then there's our relationship with other people. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, Let this mind be in you which was in Christ. In other words, we need to think like Christ thinks and see things like Jesus sees things. How does Jesus see things? Jesus says on more, or says on more than one occasion in the Bible, when all those people were coming out to Jesus to hear the word and to be healed, and he looked out on them and he had compassion on them. Jesus had compassion on the people. He felt sorry for them. He cared about their needs. Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ. What mind? Jesus was compassionate towards other people. He cared for other people. That means you and I need to care for other people. Of all the ways that God could have come down this earth and show that he was God, he could have had storms, he could have done like in the Old Testament where the smoke covered the mountain and there was lightning and trumpets and scared the people. He could have put signs in heaven. All the things that he could have done to show that he was God, how did he choose? He chose to show that he was God by showing his love. Isn't that what Jesus spent a good part of his life doing besides preaching was healing people? He showed he was God by loving people and showing them his love. And we need to do the same thing. In Luke, a a lawyer came to Jesus testing Jesus. And he says, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, well, what do you read in the scriptures? And the lawyer answered and he said, well, we say Bible back then, it was just the Old Testament, that's all they had. He said, the scriptures say to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And the second uh, is to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, you've said rightly. But then the lawyer willing to justify himself, maybe kind of get out of his stuff he needed to be doing, said, well, who's my neighbor? And so Jesus proceeds to tell him about the Good Samaritan. Remember Uh, there was a man that was traveling and he fell among thieves and they robbed him and they beat him and they left him for dead. Well, then a priest of God comes by and goes to the other side of the road. And some Levites come by, or a Levite comes by and goes to the other side of the road. And all these people that are supposed to be good religious people don't care about the man. But then there's a Samaritan. Who's a Samaritan? Well, when the kingdom of Israel divided, some of them remained... Maybe showing my ignorance here. There was uh, the kingdom of Israel and then the kingdom of Judah. I think it was the king, one of the two, uh, intermarried among non-Jews, and they were despised. You know, in the early part of the earlier part of the 1900s, if someone was half black and half white, they were half white and half Indian. They were called half breed, and nobody liked them. The Indians didn't like them, and the white people didn't like them. They were just despised, and that's the way the Samaritans were. Well, of all the people, all the godly people that passed this man that had been robbed, who helped him? 
the one that everyone looked down on and despised. And Jesus tells us, lawyer, you go and do likewise. In other words, we're supposed to care about the people around us. And we do this by little things. What is Jesus going to judge us by on Judgment Day? Well, in Matthew chapter 25, he says, In the Son will come in all his glory. And just as a shepherd divides the sheep from the goats, Jesus is going to divide the sheep from the goats. And then he's going to say to those on his right hand, Come, enter into the kingdom of my Father, because you did great and glorious and wondrous things. Right? No, that's not what Jesus says he's going to judge us on. He says, I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. I was hungry and you fed me. I was naked and you gave me clothes. He says, you inherit the kingdom of my Father because you did the little things that make a difference in people's lives. And why is he going to condemn people? He says to those on his left hand, he says, he says, I was hungry and you didn't feed me. He says, you didn't clothe me. You didn't visit me. You didn't do anything. You didn't do any of the little things. We're going to be judged by the little things that we do. In Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 2, Paul writes, Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing some have unwittingly entertained angels. Don't forget to entertain strangers. What does that mean? Juggling and... No, just having them in your house, feeding them, giving them a place to stay, whatever it is they need. Why does Paul say, don't forget to entertain strangers? Because he knows we would forget. And so he reminds us, don't forget. So I ask you a simple question. When was the last time you had someone to your house for supper or something, games or something? A simple thing anyone can do, and yet when was the last time you did that? I remember back in about 1978, my grandparents lived in the house that John and Julia live in now, and I came and spent one winter with them. And, uh, of course, my grandfather was an evangelist, and he got me some, took me around with him, and other congregations got to know me, so they'd invite me to speak. And I remember one time I went and spoke in Durant, Oklahoma, which then, I may still be, I don't know, was a little, little bitty church. I mean, like these three rows right here, it was a little church. And the only couple, I mean, I, I was you know, 20-something. I didn't have much money. I, I was out of town. I didn't know, really know anybody there. This one couple, this old couple, no kids, no one my age, took me home for lunch. And it was a cold, cold, cold day, windy. And these people lived in this little house. And I don't know if there was a... Of course, I was wearing these thin and I don't know if there was a hole in the floor under the dining room table or in the wall next to it, but I could feel that wind going up my pants legs. <laughs> and I was shaking. It was cold. But you know what? They didn't make excuses. After church, they didn't say, oh, we don't have a very nice house. We don't have a very big meal. We don't have any kids his age. They were the only ones. Sometimes you go and you know, two or three people say, hey, would you come home with us? They were the only ones. And look at the houses that we have now, how big and nice and warm. When was the last time we had someone over to our house? I remember, I don't remember most of the lessons I've ever heard, probably like you don't. But I remember one that David Minson gave in Lubbock years ago. And I, I think I've mentioned this before, so forgive me. He talked about the fact that we make all these big plans in our head 
about what we're going to do when our ship comes in. We're going to have a lot of money. I'm going to give, every Christmas, I'm going to give $1,000 to the children's home, you know, an orphanage. I'm going to give, I had an aunt that died of cancer. I'm going to give so much money to the cancer research. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. David asked the question, what are you doing now? If you stop and think about it, a lot of times when we give a, a lot of money or do something big, that's really not all the time, but often to make ourselves feel good. But when we do the little things daily, that indicates that we're just a loving, giving person. What are we doing with what we have now? Maybe I don't have $1,000 to send to the children's home in Lubbock, but could I send 25? What are you doing with what you've got now? Don't neglect the little things. I've heard on more than one occasion charities that ask for money. And, of course, they advertise. You see pictures in the paper where some McLean's Food is giving a check for $10,000 to some charity. But I've heard from more than one charity that most of the money they make are from 10 and 15 and $20 checks. What are you doing with what you have now? In James chapter 2, James explains that we cannot say that we believe in God and we trust Him if we don't have works to to show. He says if you really believe in God and, and believe what He says, then you'll be out doing things. And John basically says the same thing. In John, First uh, John, chapter three, he says, "But whosoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God dwell in him?" In other words, how can you say, "Come to church on Sunday morning, take the communion, and sing," say, "Oh, I believe in God, I believe in God with all my heart," but then the rest of the week do nothing about it? We can't neglect the little things. The little things are what's going to stop save us or or condemn us. In Proverbs, it talks about a word fitly spoken. I remember reading about a man that committed suicide, and in his suicide note, he had said, if just one person smiles at me, I won't do it. But he did it, so what does that mean? Nobody smiled at him that day. A smile, a word of encouragement... Pat on the back, a visit to a sick person, uh, some money given to support a widow in India. It's the little things that make our lives better. And if you think back on the things in your life that have really impressed you, occasionally it was something big like visiting the Grand Canyon. But often, it's the little things. I remember when we first moved here, Her son Robert ran into the side of a truck and it just about killed him. The doctors didn't expect him to make it. And the fire department there in Gunner set up a a fund for people to donate to to help with all the expenses we had. And we got... What the bank would do is they would... uh, it would be sent to this account, the bank would deposit them, but they would photocopy these checks and send us copies so we would know what was going on. 
And I remember there's a big subdivision that you've all passed, probably come in our house called Hidden Lakes. At that time, that was just like a ranch, just an acreage. And I think it was whoever owned that sent us a check for $1,000. And that was pretty cool. But the check that the checks that impressed me the most were the checks, for example, there's this one, I know she had to have been an old lady because her handwriting, you know how when people get older, their handwriting is so shaky. And she sent us a check for $25. And I remember another came from probably a widow lady. And she said, she stuck, put a note in there. And she said that her, the man that did her lawn in her had agreed that he would do the lawn for free that week. And the money she normally paid him, she would send to us. And that $1,000 check meant a lot. But those people sold that 450 acres for a few years later and probably made several million dollars. And so that was just a drop in the bucket for them. But for those old widow ladies, I'll tell you the check, another check. Just almost one week to the day before Robert moved there, or before we moved to Gunner, just if you go west from our house and turn left or right, it enters to tease into another street. And there was a girl that was probably 13 or 14. And she was riding a four-wheeler. And back then, there weren't many uh, houses out there, not much traffic. And I think she'd been visiting a friend. She's going back home. So she went down there, and she turned, and she didn't stop at the stop sign and she just turned on that road and the car hit and killed her. While still grieving from the loss of their daughter, those people sent us a check. It's the little things that make a big difference. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16, Paul again reminds us, but do not forget to do good and share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Today and this week, let's look at the opportunities that we've been passing by and do good for other people. We now have a song of invitation. We'll sing.